correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, your gamers roll. www.d20radio.com Roll for initiative. Greetings, Gamer Nation, and welcome back to the Roll for Initiative podcast. Your hosts are back this week, DM Vince and... DM Jason. How you doing tonight, Jason? I'm doing really good tonight. Thanks. Well, we're back with episode number three. Well, so far, we made it to number three. We, you know, it's a couple down underneath the belt. We're doing good. We had some good feedback, and uh, as you can see, we've joined the D20 Radio Network. Yes, that was really wonderful of them. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing from all the listeners. Yeah, and you can uh, you can contact the D20 Radio Network and see our show in their forums at d20radio.com. And you can download their shows there as well, like the Order 66 podcast, which is the flagship show of uh, D20 Radio, with hosted by GM Dave and GM Chris, and that's a Star Wars-related podcast. And we also have a couple and, more. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, well, there's Radio Free Hamlet, which I've listened to for quite a while now. They're great. They're, I think they're on number 36. Mm, I think Adventure 36, as they call it. Adventure 36. And uh, we have the Power Source, which is another podcast uh, that's a D&D 4th edition podcast. And they're, I think, at Adventure number 9 or Episode number 9 at this point. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that show. I don't uh, play, play the edition that much, but um, I enjoy the show anyway. It's just great. Well, great production, really fun hosts. Great hosts. Both shows. Great hosts, great productions. And it's good just to, I mean, there's still D&D, so it's just something nice to listen to on your iPod. You're zooming away. Yeah, you told me. You told me somebody said something nice about a. They, they don't. They don't plan to play first edition, but they're going to listen to the show. So hey, that's great. Yeah, we did get some feedback on the forums uh, from one of the users, Buzz XF, and he did say that we did do a great podcast. And he may not play, but he will listen, and we appreciate the uh, the listener and fandom. So yeah, thank you, Buzz. I'm glad to know we can be entertaining. <laughs> And if you do want to contact us with any gripes or concerns, or you just want to, you know, leave a little hello, you can send us an MP3 file, or you can just send us a general email at rfistaff at gmail dot com. What's that address again? Rfistaff at gmail dot com. Gmail dot com, right? <laughs> and come to our website at rfipodcast dot com which you can uh, see the latest information, and you can stream the show live just in case you have problems downloading it. So i uh, see you there. Okay, we'll move on to our feature segment this week of Rebinding Your Books. As you know, Jason, there's a lot of books out there that have some warped covers and some bindings that are gone and ripped to shreds. So um, there's a lot of people that like to collect these books and like to keep them in good condition. So what we'll do this week is we'll take a look at how you can rebind your books so you can uh, keep them in good condition and usable condition. It's great if you're out buying some books or if you're just trying to repair your own. Because I know for myself, I am, I'm not a collector. I'm a user of my stuff. And so my things get beat up and... You know, I've got an, a, a first Deities and Demigods printing, the one with the Cthulhu mm. mythos in it. Yeah. And, you know, you, you're not going to go out and just pick up another one. They they were forced to stop printing those after the first printing. So what are you going to do if it's all torn up? Well, you're going to follow these simple steps. And we'll post the link 
uh, in our show notes and on our forums at d20radio.com or at dragonsfoot.org also as well, uh, how to rebind your book. So what you're going to need here, what, what, the first thing you're going to need is some plastic glue. Now, uh, I really can't recommend a site to get it because the prices vary from site to site, and sometimes they go up and down. Amazon... Can you, can you explain what it is, though? Because I, I don't know what plastic glue is. It, it's Plastic glue is, is like a white glue similar to Elmer's glue. It's flexible, and it's, it's, a, it's a permanent type glue, it, it, glue that dries... Um, it's a polyvinyl um, glue. Okay, so we'll, we'll we'll go in the show notes and we'll find some at least some brands of it. You could mostly find them at art supply stores, but I'm pretty sure you can grab it off Amazon, and I'm sure Staples probably carries it because they have a lot of bookbinding accessories. That makes sense. Um, what are we going to need next? Uh, a pair of sharp scissors and uh, a single stitched binder tape, uh, which is a special type of tape used to hold the binding together. It's a clear tape. So we're going to need that. And then we're going to need a bone folder. A what? It's called a bone folder. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm not finding this at Staples, am I? Uh, probably. No, actually, you, you might find this at Staples because there's a lot of book binding accessories there. I mean, if not, they could probably order it from you. Basically, what this is going to do, you know that little crease in the binding that's kind of like an old, um, how do you explain that, a moon-shaped upside down that gives you that little gouge in the middle there, kind of like the blood groove of a knife, <laughs> the best way I could describe it. Are you talking about the outside of the book? Yeah, the outside of the book. Okay, so along the cover over by the spine? Yeah, you know that little groove that's there? Yes. Well, that's what this would do. This would smooth the tape out and put that groove back in it. And we need some heavy waxed thread. So you, okay. can, so you can uh, pretty much put the, th uh, the book together with the threading. A sharp needle for that thread. Mm -hmm. And we're going to need some carpenters, rubber bands, or a book press. A lot of people don't have a book press because that's probably hundreds of dollars. Right, but there's probably other things you could use uh, instead of that. My suggestion, which I've used, is um, uh, a workman bench uh, a grip, a vice. Take that two, makes sense. Take two pieces of, uh, of wood equal to the size of the book, a little bit bigger, Put it one side, one side in there, and you put the book in there, and you tie it, and you spin it nice and tight, but not enough that it's going to make a mark in the book. Right, right. Okay, so uh, Jason, so, what's step one? Okay, so well, step one that I'm looking at here is have a workplace. So already, as a as a person who lives in Manhattan, that's a little bit of an issue. But okay, so you get you get a good, well lit table, you get all set up, uh, and the first thing it's telling us to do is to. Uh, Get the signatures back together. So um, signatures are when when a a book is printed. I'm assuming here because I used to do magazine printing. I didn't do any. I've never done book printing. Mm -hmm. But the signatures are uh, the sections that are individually connected, and then all of those are put together. So you don't just have all of the pages folded in one place. You have a whole lot of little ones. So the first thing is that those have to be fixed individually if it's an issue. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's. And you put those all together, and once we do that, um, we're going to fold the ends of the signature and make sure they're sewn together as one big book, sort of say. So just imagine the whole book without the cover binding on it right now. Yeah, and I'm looking at a picture here. It kind of it, it makes sense. I see what they're doing. It's, like you say, it's the book without the cover. You got to thread it back together. Now we're going to want to use our plastic glue and put it on the spine edge where the uh, of the signatures, so we can uh, make sure it's all stuck together. And we're going to put uh, a single stitch binding tape equal to the the height of the book on the end there and there's a little picture here that shows how to do that and then we're going to uh 
There's where our sharp scissors come into play. Yeah, okay. you're going to have to try to cut it to the length of the book, and there's another picture for that. We'll have to give you the link of this, because the pictures show a lot more than us describing it. So that, okay, so this is where the glue comes in, because we got to get that cover back onto the book. And I guess there's some things you might be able to do, depending on how bad the cover is. Right, I mean, if you just have a simple... Um, a book that maybe just the cover's a little loose on it. You just may need some glue, and you might need a little bit of a brush or uh, a long... Uh, uh, some uh, supply shops also like the long Q-tips for gluing things in certain spots that you can't reach with your hands because it's so small. Mm-hmm. You would use the glue, and you can just stick it inside the binding and glue up that, and then you would push it back together in the press or your grip, or your vice, and that would probably fix your book. If, and they also said if the pages, you know how sometimes when you open up the front page, the binding is loose inside, as in like the first page that's yeah, on the cover? Yeah, yeah. You can also use this glue inside there as well to push that's that good. page back down. Sometimes um, they do uh, suggest sewing with the wax thread, but uh, I've mm-hmm. never used that method at all. So, Well, I mean, it, it sounds a little time-consuming, but not that difficult. Right, and they go through this whole process, and they show you how to put the book together, uh, and they show you gluing and using the bone edge just to get the spine just right Mm -hmm. in the last few steps, and then they tell you how to apply the rubber bands around it and put it in the book press. Now, uh, you can leave it there overnight and return into the morning, and it should be just good as new. Now, what are these rubber bands doing? I'm looking for that. Uh, the rubber bands go over the book just to hold everything in place. That's all. Oh, okay. So, while, so what you're doing with the book press is you're giving the tape and the glue and everything time to set for the night? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then once you move everything uh, from the book press and the rubber bands, you should have a good, solid binding again. I mean, it's not going to be like the original, original binding, but, but it should be enough to hold the book together and look good. Yeah, and this isn't... For somebody who's a collector and is trying to repair 300-year-old books to sell them at an auction. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, this is because we use our books every day, and we want to be able to keep on using them. Some some, some people have, like, I've asked this question in the Dragon uh, Dragon Org forums, Dragonfoot Org's forums, sorry about that. And uh, a lot of people have, like, said duct tape. No, I didn't like that idea. And uh, what does duct tape do to your books, Jason? It destroys them. Yeah, but duct tape is the universal tool that cures all. Yeah, but, I mean, it turns to goo in a little while, and it starts to, the page starts to fall off, and then when it falls off with the duct tape, it rips it, so it makes it even worse. Well, the Mythbusters built a boat out of it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying. That, that is <laughs> No, true. you're right. Duct tape, uh, duct tape would have actually been my first uh, solution, and you're right. It's probably a bad solution if you want to keep that book for more than a couple of months afterwards. And uh, if you go to um, Broaddart or Demco, if you do a search for them on the web, they do have, uh, as I see on this website, a free book repair booklet that gives you more details on all the things we just said, plus this website, which we'll list in our show notes linking. I would definitely get that. Oh, yeah. I think the other thing that looks pretty fun about this is that if you have a book that's a little tatty, and... Player's Handbooks, Dungeon Master's Guides are still pretty easy to come by. You're not going to spend a lot on them. So I think you could kind of have fun making your own covers. Mm. You, can, yeah, you know, you don't just have to repair books. You can actually, or, you know, with a lot of the things out there, like the Ostrich system, things that are available in PDF or uh, for download, that you could create your own books by hand. 
Mm, yeah, definitely. Which would be a lot of fun. Be a lot of fun to make your own, uh, like just make up a book of just the treasure charts, for example, in the back of the book, and just call it the book of treasure, and you have your own quick reference guide, you have your own picture on. I think that'd be kind of cool. Actually, I could really use something like this because I've been sitting around trying to figure out exactly what tables I need to have at the ready all the time so that I don't have the game like I usually do where I have books spread everywhere and I'm flipping through notebooks quickly trying to find stuff. My plan so far was to just get a three-ring binder and do that, but if this, I'm going to try this out. If I can do it, if I can succeed, I'll, I'll come back and say on a future show, but I'm going to see if I can make a book. All right, cool. Make a book and see what happens and let us know. Absolutely. And when it fails spectacularly, I'll put the pictures up so everybody can laugh at me. <laughs> and we can always use a good laugh at your expense. That's the best kind. That's true. Jason, uh, I just want to let you know that uh, when I've been checking the mailbox lately, I got really something strange the other day. Oh really? What did you get? I uh, I was walking outside and I was at the mailbox and it was a, it was a little bit of a cloudy day and it was like the cold outside and I heard this, mm, it's this that time of year, yeah, yeah. I heard this screeching sound and I, I looked up in the air. Yeah, screeching sound. Yeah, was it a, I, I thought maybe something here there would be a pigeon. <laughs> well, yeah, in New York there probably would be a lot of pigeons, but here in PA I, I, you don't see many pigeons flying around here, especially in my area. Yeah. And I looked up in the sky and I saw this bird flying towards me and I, I didn't know what was going on so I kind of backed up a little bit afraid and I ran back towards the house but the bird followed me and it looked like it was a hawk. Wow. And I, yeah, and I'm like, a hawk? What is a hawk doing over here? And he stopped at my my front steps and he, he left something there and when I came outside it was uh, this weird scroll casing. I've never wow. actually seen a scroll casing before until now. I actually had to go online and look this up. <laughs> Seriously, because I was like, what is this round circular thing? And I looked online, and they said it was a scroll casing, and it had a lightning bolt on the outside of it. Oh, I hope you didn't touch it. Oh, unfortunately, I did. <laughs> well, and, you're uh, here to tell the tale. Well, yeah, I'm still alive. And I, I opened it up, and I'm opening it up right now, folks. And uh, as I'm opening it up, it looks like it's a bunch of diaries from... Uh, Someone named Thane, and he seems to be, after reading it briefly, uh, if I flip to that page here, where is that? Uh, his name was Thane. I, I don't understand this. Uh, do you, Jason? Maybe we could uh, hear one of them and find out. Yeah, let's, 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 let's take a listen. My eyes are open wide, but all I see is blackness. My lungs are full of water. I am not dead. Not yet. Heronius, relieve me of my fear. And in death, may I serve your ends, as I have tried so feebly in this life. I have had this dream every night since the shipwreck, yet it always ends with my soul twice delivered. For one, I was not afraid. I felt close to him, and death held no strangeness or terror. Did he show me his favor in this comfort, in what by all rights ought to have been my final moment? 
I was ready, but I did not die. The second deliverance. A strong hand pulled me onto the raft, no more than a piece of the wreck of the ship that would have borne us to our quest. Athanasius, never has the face of a friend and mentor been so welcome as when you drew me from the blackness. To follow you and serve Heronius as you did was my only ambition. Your prayers were not only sweet in the ear of Heronius, they were a guide to me. Sometimes, when I wanted for inspiration, or fortification from fear, or discipline in the face of my own lesser nature, I would imagine the difficult, honorable path as advice, given by your voice, and it gave me the strength to do the will of our God. Athanasius, the light of Heronius was so strong in you, and now, snuffed out. In my prayers, I will never fail to mention your name. Now I wear your bolt of silver around my neck, and will raise it and proclaim the power of Heronius. For I shall not abandon it, or our quest. Why else have I been spared your fate, and the fate of all who sailed with us? If I die in this quest, dare I beg your intercession with our God, that I lived to do his will by following your most excellent example. And if I live, I will declare you Saint Athanasius of the God Heronius, and dedicate a temple in the land in which you were martyred, when it is freed by a most deserved crusade from the orcs, goblins, and trolls who infest it. For the shore on which we washed up was that of the Pomarge. Its people, those who remain, are slaves to the foul creatures that teem in its wastes. No man, elf, or dwarf would set foot willingly in that cursed land. Five of us had found each other, survivors of the wreck, and made our desperate flight to the northwest. And I had hope that we could yet carry forth our mission in spite of our terrible misfortune at sea. Besides Athanasius and myself, there was a young wizard and two crusaders, all of whom had been part of our quest from the beginning. On our doomed ship, the rest were scribes en route to the city of Greyhawk, some commoners, and others unknown to me. I do not see how any of them could have survived. In fact, I am quite sure I am the last. We were correct in believing we were not far from the borders of the wild lands where the foul creatures of the Palmarge fear to wander. We thought by a forced march we could escape. But the smell of the flesh of men in the Palmarge roused a hunting party of orcs. The others knew I could not match them in battle. And though they did not mean to die to protect me, before they turned to face the orcs, they passed to me their correspondence, maps, and a few personal effects, such that I knew without any discussion that I was to survive them if the battle went ill. Orcs are most fearful of magic, and their crude arrows slew the wizard in the first moments of battle. The others were overtaken, three orcs to a man, and cut down, or caught in their nets, dragged off to a fate far worse. I was well hidden, and though the orcs thought they'd finished us, 
some searched out the area, as close as they were willing to venture to a border that I know is more weakly guarded than they believe it to be. One of them came upon me in my hiding place, and the power of Heronius protected me. I issued the command in the orcish tongue, and this weak-willed beast obeyed a god so much greater than his own. But in minutes, a new hunting party was raised. I'm fortunate to be much more fleet of foot than I am skilled with a mace. Those who my friends could not defeat, I could outrun. And so, I am encamped alone in a wild land. There is no ship to bear me to safety, and nowhere to go but onward. I still have a quest. I will attain it or die, and death holds no fear for me now. Wow. That is quite a letter. Yeah. <laughs> if you could have seen this side, you'd seen the image that came up, and it was all this like running around and craziness for a scroll. That was amazing. I've never seen a scroll <laughs> like this before. Maybe. I've never known a scroll that could actually have a soundtrack. That's pretty cool. And, uh, yeah, that, that was an amazing soundtrack. <laughs> but it was, it was Well, a- um, so I guess this is a good time to let everybody know that we are going to have a new feature every week. Mm. A new uh, scroll hopefully will be available for us to read each week. Yeah, we should have something each week because we have a whole bunch here. It's just amazing if you look at these things. Uh, I'm pulling them out here and looking. We got tons of them, but you're just gonna have to wait to each show to hear them. So, so that was the uh, the first time that we've heard now from the cleric Thane. Hopefully, uh, we'll hear from him again, and hopefully, he survived. I mean, that was interesting how the uh, the orcs. Uh, attacked the wizard when he was casting a spell. I mean, you know, that was smart of them. Very, that was very, you know, orcs, they're not, they're not the brightest uh, when it comes to math and science or the arts or civilization or <laughs> daily showers and washing themselves. But when yeah. it comes to fighting, they know who to go after first. Obviously, yeah, because they, they took down that wizard one, two, three. You know, that's the thing. In the uh, uh, first edition AD&D, you want to make sure uh, when you are going up against a magic user or a spellcaster of any type, if you interrupt them, that spell's not going to go off. So they were very smart to uh, spot the magic user. And obviously the party wasn't protecting their spellcaster well enough at that point. No, and you always know you should protect your spellcaster because once he's down, there goes uh, your powerful spells. Very much, very much. There's a lot they can be doing while they're back there, but uh, if they've been slain, it's not very much. So, I, I noticed also that uh, he was on the peninsula of the Pomarge, which of course is in Greyhawk. Hmm. Um, something I'm still kind of learning about, honestly. Uh, you know, we've played campaigns in Greyhawk before, but this is the first time that I've really tried to uh, take a campaign through it properly and completely, so I'm really starting to learn some of these things myself. Uh, the Pomarge is um, its on the Azure Sea, which is sort of the the center of all of uh, Auric, which is the, the part of Greyhawk that, that anybody would have a map for if you've got the official thing. And the Pomarge, I guess, is most well known for having the Orcish Empire 
there. It's one of the most horrible concentrations of orcs that you're going to find. Oh, I guess the thing is really screwed at this point. It's not the kind of place I'd want to be shipwrecked, absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, I was looking back at uh, the uh, the Greyhawk uh, glossography, I mm. guess. Okay. You know, or the, yeah, yeah, the glossography. Mm. And it says here that Pomarge, while there are humans... Uh, that they there's about twenty thousand humans they think, but there's actually fifteen thousand orcs and ten thousand goblins. Ooh. So, yeah, and knowing uh, what an orc can do to three or more humans, uh, it's very you can be if you've got ten humans and five orcs, the humans are outnumbered. Yikes! Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. So I hope you'll be all right. <laughs> um, I, I, I heard one other thing there it was a, a clerical spell that he managed to use even though he sounds like he is a very low level cleric with a party that was slain even though they were higher level I did hear him get a command spell in there at the end yeah there were some pretty good effects on that command spell yeah well that's what magic scrolls can do <laughs> but uh, you know, if it, that's a, a good thing to think about is that if you're playing a cleric, um, unlike a magic user, a cleric does actually have the ability to pray for any of the spells uh, that are uh, known to to clerics. And so, pick wisely. Command is a very good spell to have at first level. Definitely, um, one word spell, but it's still very useful. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun when you're playing to see how a person can come up with uh, how they can be creative about what one word they're going to use. Hmm. You know, the, the suicide isn't going to work. No, no. But no. <laughs> that's I think the example that's given in the uh, player's handbook is that you can't sell, tell somebody to die. All they'll do is just fall asleep uh, or pretend to. But uh, flee, flee was a very good word for him to choose. I think in the heat of the moment, he chose wisely. Yes, that got his uh, pursuers away from him and gave him a chance to hide and escape somewhere else, actually. Well, we'll uh, check back next week to see um, what else has happened to Thane. Yeah, I hope that hawk stays away. It was kind of scary. <laughs> Let's move into the Creature Feature Theater this week. Hey, I didn't screw it up this time, did I? Excellent. And what are we looking We're at this to... week? Uh, is going to be our Beholder. Yeah, this is a really classic one. It was the first article that I think I ever read uh, myself. When I, when I first, uh, in, in Dragon Magazine, first one of these, when I first subscribed to Dragon was around 83 mm-hmm. or so. Okay. And this, uh, this article appeared back in August of 83 called The Ecology of the Beholder. And which one was that? Uh, oh, it's um, Dragon Magazine number 76. Ah, 76, okay. Yeah, so why don't you give us a little introduction to the, the Beholder in general? Well, pretty much the Beholder is this mythological, like, giant round thing with an eyeball, and it has these little stalks on it with eyeballs that do different things. Now, if you've ever seen the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon, they had an episode based on this Beholder, and he did all these magical, amazing things with his eyes, and uh, and they had to try to defeat it. Well, I mean, a lot of people in, in D&D history, back, especially back in the AD&D days, were scared of Beholders. Oh, and, unbelievable. You see a Beholder coming. I mean, what, 11 eyes yeah. and different powers on each stock? Yeah. No, if, thank you. If you, look at the, if you look at the picture in the, play, in the original Monster Manual, it's a, an eyeball with this big gruesome grin and all these little eye stalks on it. Each of the eye stalks do something different, and usually if one of these came floating down that hallway... You were running the other way. 
and and the, they're not small. Uh, oh. These. It's interesting in the ecology of the beholder. This was by Ed Greenwood and Roger E. Moore, um, and I consider uh, things by them to be fairly canonical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that's described in this this article is uh, written from the point of view of a sage with his pupils talking about the dreaded eye tyrants. Okay, is what they call them. Uh, they I don't think they even call them the beholders during the conversation, although. Obviously, the article is called The Beholder. And they talk of the dreaded eye tyrant that can be the height of a man. So this is a huge sphere, six could be six feet in diameter. I mean, it's massive. And it comes floating at you with these eyeballs. Uh, <laughs> what, are, what are the different... So there's, there's ten stalks on the eye stalks and right. then one huge eye in the center. What do the ten different eyes do? I don't have all of them here. Uh, if you turn over the monster manual to page ten, it'll show you the beholder, but in case you want to read along with us, but I'll, I'll go a quick rundown here. We have eye stalk one that'll charm... It's a charm person spell. Hmm. We have eye stalk... Already two. bad news. Yeah. Number two will charm a monster spell. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. And then three is a sleep spell, which is bad news in itself. Yeah, I mean, the sleep spell is one of the things that uh, a low-level magic user relies on the most for themselves. And if a low-level magic user can use it to some effect, imagine what a huge, powerful monster uh, like this can do. Another one of its stock is like has a telekinesis ability, uh, with, which can uh, do 2,500 gold pieces in weight. So that's about 250 pounds. Yeah, to move things around. That's pretty scary in itself, too. Imagine picking up a big, giant rock and crushing you while he put you to sleep. Well, I mean, could he? Could the Beholder then pick up the party members? Yeah, they could. Oh, gee. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. no, no. You don't want to run into this already. And how many eye stocks are you through so far? Four. Four. Oh, okay. Keep going. And then we have, which is kind of scary in itself, turn flesh to stone. Ray. All right. Not, yeah. It's okay. Not that, so so far, yeah. I've been charmed into staying in place. <laughs> a monster has been charmed into coming at me. Maybe I've resisted the sleep spell, but I've been lifted into the air, and now I'm going to be turned to stone. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then it gets worse. He has a chance to disintegrate you with one of its other <laughs> eye stalks. Because disintegrate Ray was the next one. Clearly, you do not rush this head on. Okay, keep going. And then we have a fear one. It's the same effect. As he doesn't the- need that. He doesn't no, no. need the fear. I've already got the fear. He doesn't need it. it, it but is- okay, sure. He's got fear. <laughs> it is the same as the wand uh, of ability. So, and then after that, in case he wants to chase you, he can cast a slow spell on you, so he can you know savor the the chase. Mm-hmm. And then, on top of that, he can cause serious wounds to you. <laughs> Okay. Well, you know, he's going to be fighting a lot of different characters in the party, so, you know, maybe one's turning to stone, one's causing serious wounds. All right. Mm. And then, on top of all that, he has a death oh, ray. Oh, no. Yeah, a death ray. Finish it off. Oh, okay. So those are the ten stalks. And then, of course, what I do know is that in addition to the ten eyes that are on stalks, there's one huge center eye that's mm-hmm. kind of the main one right. that is uh, one of the most feared properties of the beholder and that is the anti-magic ray right each of these eye stalks have a different range so if it's too far away from you it wouldn't be able to reach you so if you're out of that foot range then you're lucky yeah well the anti-magic ray it's explained in a little bit more depth in the article in the ecology of the beholder oh okay 
it is a, a conical ray, you know, it goes out from the eye, spreads out in a cone, and it looks like a faintly, visib- faintly visible beam of grayish light, and it can extend 140 yards. Yikes. So any, uh, and I, I guess if you were playing this, the, the way to do this during the game as the DM, if you've got a, uh, if, if you play Warhammer or any other uh war game you might have some templates laying around those little conical shaped templates and you could probably use that to kind of figure roughly where that would go or you could just draw it out um, depending on whether you use miniatures or what you do but essentially you could figure out just how huge that cone is and he's able to the beholder is able to actually direct that and move from one character to another so if you're a spellcaster trying to take down a beholder you've really got to be careful Interesting. Hmm. Um, it does actually go into a little bit more detail about it as well. This anti-magic ray is specifically against spells and magic items with spell-like abilities. So what that means is that Yikes. your magic user, your cleric, they're not going to be able to cast spells. Darn. Uh, your your uh, ring of magic missiles will not fire any magic missiles. No. But... Um, your plus two sword, your plus one armor, those will still function. Right, yeah, because they're more of a protective magical thing as opposed to an offensive. Yeah, well, well, no, the plus two sword will still work too. Oh, the way it yeah, describes yeah, yeah. it is that it's specifically against spell-like abilities. So the, I guess the distinction is that a uh, magical armor or a magical weapon has sort of an inherent magic that is baked into it if you will, yeah. uh, whereas these other things are uh, magic that has to be uh, triggered in some way, mm. maybe. Or you could just say, look, it's the, the armor and the weapons work, nothing else does, and, that, and that's the way it is. Um, some other things about the Beholder, the way that it actually levitates, so it does levitate, it has in the center of its body, so the way that this Beholder is created is this huge round creature and you can think of it shaped like maybe a creature of the depths of the sea except that it's floating in a cave and in the it's got these hard plates that surround its body it's armored and in the center of the body is its brain and inside its brain mm-hmm. so the brain surrounds another organ inside and it's called the levator magnus and this is the actual organ that allows it to levitate Hmm. Now, there's there's no... And the first thing you might think when you hear that that exists is that maybe a dispel magic on the Beholder would take it down, but unfortunately, there's no magic that can negate this levitation. It's not the type that can be negated for now, whatever reason. There's a couple interesting things I'd like to point out about this. Um, now that you're, you're thinking... the hit points on this thing is um, based upon you can take down each eye stock one at a time if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. And they have a range of about 8 to 12 hit points before they're little lost. So the, you know, the DM can decide which, how you want to do that. Mm-hmm. And most of the hit points is the body but it, it just each eye stock is individual so hit points. So you know it's kind of interesting to see how the party works this out. Now it's really interesting what you were just saying about uh, based on the books the DM is going to need to come up with a uh, a way to figure out who's hitting where and you know which eye stock. So the article did go to the length of uh, codifying this a little bit. 
so whenever a hit is attempted on a beholder, you can roll percentile dice to see where the hit's going to land. So there's a 75% chance of hitting versus the body, and the body has an armor class of zero. Okay. Th- then if you roll from a 76 to an 85, then you're hitting versus the 11th eye, the main eye, the big one, and it has an armor class of seven. And if you are rolling from 86 to 95, then it's the eye stocks, which have an armor class of two. And above that, from a 96 to a double O, there's the actual small eyes themselves rather than the stocks. And they have an armor class seven, just like the big eye. And uh, you roll a D10 to figure out which one of, of the eyes you hit, just like you would for the stock. And if you actually manage to hit the small eye itself, that immediately destroys it and its powers. Hmm. So it's a little bit of uh, opportunity there to go for the weak spot, basically. Interesting. <clears throat> and, and this is why it's pretty important as a player to get to know your monsters, because, um, and I don't mean necessarily... Yeah. Uh, read the all the books because that's kind of silly. Metagaming. You know, it, yeah, it's metagaming. It, it, it just goes... It takes the fun out of it. But what I mean is that for the player characters to try to learn these things. So if you know that you're going to be uh, going to a particular place, dungeon, cave, forest, whatever, and before you go into that adventure, you should really take the time to try to... Ex- uh, dig up legends and stories and rumors and news and whatever you can about what lurks there and then go to some sages, try to find these things out because if your DM will rule that you're able to actually discover these things ahead of time, then your character could go in knowing I can hit the eye and I can take him out. Another thing interesting about the Beholder is it's an exceptionally intelligent creature. Unlike most of the creatures out there, you have a 50% chance if you're a powerful party to, to negotiate with it. So that maybe, Absolutely. Yeah, so maybe he won't attack and maybe he'll take some money and just turn the other way. Well, they, de- they love treasure. They, they definitely hoard treasure. Um, I think if you're going to negotiate, there's, it's going to be hard because on the food chain, <laughs> beholders are at the top. Uh, humans in this world are not the top of the food chain. In fact, that is the beholder who actually loves the taste of human flesh. Uh, in, in this, it says that the things they love to eat the most are horses, cattle, and humans. Wow. So um, if you're going to negotiate, you better be very powerful and a huge threat or have something that it really wants and cannot get by simply eating you. True. And uh, I know you're but, probably thinking, well... How am I going to communicate with a beholder? Well, they do speak their own language, but as we all know, playing first edition, each alignment has its own special type of language too. A little bit is like a cant, I think, or a yeah. alignment language. Yeah, right. And they speak lawful evil. They they're lawful evil. Um, they're they're lawful evil, and they actually really conform to the idea of a lawful character in that they also tend to attract followers. Um, which right. is another kind of important thing to know about a beholder uh, if you're going to go after one. If you think that you've caught a beholder in its lair unawares, it may have its followers uh, that are herding you into place and may be right behind you at that moment. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, the followers of a beholder um, most typically are gargoyles. Uh, 
Um, this is because beholders, uh, they, they prefer gargoyles as servants because gargoyles are a bit thick. They're not too bright. It's very easy for the beholder to keep them charmed and enthralled. And uh, they're not likely to rise up against the beholder. Uh, and they don't have to be uh, worried about being turned to stone, of course, because <laughs> they are. So there's that. Um, so you really do have to watch out for that. There's one other thing that is very valuable to know about the Beholder if you expect to ever go up against one. Of all of the defenses that they've got, of all of the strength and the armor and everything else, uh, you know, they can't be magicked away from being able to levitate. You're not going to destroy them head-on in a combat like that. But they float. And they float by levitation. So you might see where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. They're not very good at resisting heavy winds. <laughs> it specifically points this out. This is why you find beholders in dungeons and caves and underground and places where the air is very still. Uh, because if they tried to go out to the forest or the plains, they would just float away like a balloon. Wow. That'd be yeah. kind of fun so, to see that. <laughs> So, if you've got some spells, uh, some weather control, or if you just have... You don't even need a spell. If you can figure out a good mechanical way to create a huge wind, you could blow that beholder right into whatever you want. Yeah, that is a good point. I mean, when they used it in the cartoon, referring back to the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon from the 80s... The, yeah, I didn't see this episode, so tell me what happened. The beholder um, actually confronted them in a valley... So that was kind of weird. I mean, considering that they mostly, you know, will stay inside of a cave or a dungeon or something. This was out in the open. Yeah, if it was actually had if if it was actually in a valley and it actually had been windy, uh, a beholder would have actually, yeah, uh, you know, a beholder would have uh, blown away and, in yeah. the real world. <laughs> yeah, the real world, the real D and D world. In the, in the real world, a real beholder would float away. Well, you know what I mean? Yes, that's right. But um, <laughs> and it's funny. they defeated the Beholder in the cartoon by showing it a pretty flower. <laughs> oh, yeah, that probably don't don't try that in your game. Uh, I, unless your DM has a great sense of humor and a love for the '80s cartoon, probably is not a good thing to do. Oh, I, I, this reminds me of thinking of uh, you know, if you have a good DM and a love of the cartoon, I used the Beholder in one of my campaigns all about five or six years ago we were playing and I, I had these characters trapped in this little village and they were facing up against a god because they annoyed him uh, mm -hmm. I, it was one of my homemade gods I think I called him uh, Xander with an X and, nice. and he said you uh, will have to face one of my champions and he showed an image of a beholder and he has and the god said you have approximately ten of your mortal minutes to prepare mm -hmm. <laughs> So they sat there and they drew out this elaborate thing, what they're going to do to beat this beholder. This building's going to do this, and then when the beholder comes down this way, we'll run down this way, and this will fall on them, and this trap will go off. And then they had one. They had the the, the uh, thief stand out in the road to wait, just so while they're preparing the traps. So they had two thieves, so one the one would stand out in the road and watch it like a a point lookout, and uh, he stood out in the road, and I said, "You see." And I cut my hands together. I see in the distance, you see the beholder coming towards you, slowly drifting. 
and you're like, oh no, he runs back and he tells him everyone gets into place and running, and he comes back on the road. I say, and I cut my hands together. I go, you see the beholder coming into town, and he's like, he's like, well, he's he's looking at it and he's like, wait a minute. He goes, I take a close look at it, and I go, the beholder's only about approximately three inches. <laughs> three inches in circle diameter, and he comes up to maybe your chin. <laughs> and then they all got so annoyed at me. I had them going with that. I laughed hysterical because they had this big elaborate thing planned out, and the thing just walked in, the, <laughs> and the rogue just pretty much stomped on it. That's awesome. <laughs> so I had fun screwing with them. Oh, that's great. Oh, uh, although um, so so sticking to the ecology, actually, you did raise one more good point, uh, though mm-hmm. about beholders in terms of size, mm-hmm. which is could how small could a beholder ever be? Um, Three inches. And <laughs> actually, the smallest they're ever going to be. What happens is they they uh, it, it's not really clear on whether they how they reproduce in terms of uh, sexual reproduction, but they lay eggs. Uh, I guess the eggs are produced inside of the beholder, and they spit the eggs out, uh, and if you ever, as a, a uh, player, run across these beholder eggs somewhere, you'll know because they have a foul, repulsive odor. They're dead white, they're spherical, and they're very leathery. And they actually, the eggs swell up over time before they hatch. So they swell up as big as about three feet before they hatch. Oh. And then right when it's time to hatch, the beholder will actually burst out of the egg. He'll eat his own egg and uh, at birth has all of the powers of a beholder, although less hit dice and hit points and things like that. But the smallest beholder you're ever going to encounter is going to be about three feet on average. So uh, even the babies mm. are dangerous. Never if you so- find the eggs, destroy them. Yeah. But that does bring up an interesting point. Now, what if you did find an egg, and the PC took the egg and kind of nurtured the egg for a while, pretending to be its mother? Now, would that beholder come out and instantly attack, or would it consider it a mother? Well, beholders in the ecology article, it doesn't talk much about family structure. It doesn't sound like they are... They have any family structure, so I would expect that it would simply start attacking whatever it saw. But this you is, could you could yeah. decide if you are if you're that type of a DM. Yeah, I I would think this is a DM call. I mean, tell us what you want you, to do, folks out there. Write us RFI staff at gmail dot com. What would you do with that beholder egg in your group? I'm just imagining a magic user with a beholder for a familiar. This is not good. <laughs> no, no. Okay, well uh, we're gonna wrap up the creature feature theater for this week on the Beholder, and you can always uh, look it up in the Monster Manual on page 10, or you can grab the Dragon Magazine. What was that one again, Jason? 76? Uh, yeah, Dragon Magazine number 76. Okay, let's move into uh, playing tips. Uh, let's talk about alignment now. Jason, okay. tell us a little so, about alignment. Yeah, so alignment. Um, this is one of the things that new car- or new players to AD&D sometimes have a difficult time getting a grasp on because it can be very different from uh, one system to another. It's been present in every system from the first Dungeons & Dragons basic, you know, original wood grain box all the way up through the Wizards of the Coast uh, version that they make today. But in first edition, uh, it's got its own special flavor. Hmm. 
I, the point of having alignment is to give some kind of structure to the different character classes, what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do. And so your paladin is your archetype of lawful good. The, uh, well, they will always do exactly what is necessary at all times for the betterment of everybody, and they will make sure that all of the rules are followed, etc. Chaotic good is somebody that is also going to watch out for everyone and make sure that the welfare of others is always considered is first thing they think of but they're going to do it in a robin hood kind of way in a very and so you know rangers you know robin hood being sort of an archetypical ranger type unless you want to consider him a thief uh would be a perfect example of somebody that a character that'd be good to play as a chaotic good character hmm. i never I, honestly i never really thought of robin hood as a chaotic good character I I would say just in the sense that he makes his living breaking laws, but does so for a good cause. Uh, that's kind of why I'd put him there. I honestly put Robin Hood as more of a neutral good character. Yeah, that's true. I mean, because he does have a lot of uh, he has his own laws routine. and his own order, but it's not the same as society. That's true. And that's a good point for us to talk about neutrality because that's the most difficult thing, mm. I think, to play in the game is that neutrality is often played as do whatever you want. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but yeah. I, I, I see a lot of players say, well, I'm neutral so I can be evil one day and good the next, but it's no, no. it's not really like that so much. And in the in the game, the one character class that always has to be neutral is the druid. Yeah, true. Uh, because the druid is existing in harmony with nature, ensuring the balance of all things. And so for that reason, neutrality is important to them. So just if you uh, are a cleric that has a, a lawful good deity, you're going to be required to do things that advance the cause of lawfulness and, and, and the wealth of everyone. Mm. And if you have a neutral deity, just as much that deity is going to watch to see if your cleric has been... Uh, straying too far from the path and it, trying to help the good or the evil side of society too much. Hmm. Now, I always have a problem with my players picking like neutral or and later named true neutral, and I believe in second edition. I think it might have even been called true neutral in the first edition. Oh uh, yeah, okay. I just always named it just neutral. Mm -hmm. But I've always had problem with players playing that alignment, thinking they can get away with everything. So I actually have restricted that alignment from use. Really? Because I, I, I have such a hard time. And then there's another alignment that we get into in a few minutes that some players always pick, and then I can't stand because they don't know how to play it right. Is chaotic neutral? But we'll get into that in a minute. Yeah, because chaotic neutral, you know, it, it goes back to that idea of whether. Uh, chaotic is more naturally aligned with good or evil, which of course it's not more naturally aligned with anything, but it causes people to feel that perhaps that they're on that side of the fence. And I agree with you. It would concern me to see somebody playing a chaotic neutral character because of what they might decide to do with that. Well, how I handle it in my group, I when since my players are such good players and they like to pick chaotic neutral... What I do to them is I ask them for their tendency. Okay, what does that mean? Tendency meaning neutral, chaotic neutral characters do have tendencies to lean certain ways, mm -hmm. such as good or evil. 
So I want to know what your tendencies are. You pick it when you make the character, and that would make them chaotic neutral, but they tend to do good things more than bad things. I think chaotic neutral is one of those... uh, It's an alignment that, to me, exists almost because there's a spot for it on the chart, not because it's really easy to understand. Well, that's just my take on that. How do you handle your uh, chaotic neutral characters? Well, um, generally I don't encourage players to play neutral characters with regards to good versus evil Mm -hmm. because um, I definitely don't have players playing evil characters in the campaigns, not because I have any moral issues with it because it's a game. So, you know, from a morality issue, go ahead and play the most evil character you want. But the game itself isn't really set up to work well for evil characters. Uh, there's a lot you can do to make it that way, and there's certainly tons of uh, really inventive and creative things that people have done with evil characters and had a lot of fun with them. But uh, if you're playing more or less by the book and you want to keep your setup a little bit easier, uh, you're going to have a hard time if it's an evil party. And a neutral party is going to be only slightly better than that in terms of being able to uh, create appropriate adventures for them, etc. So I encourage my players to have some type of a good character. If they are going to go for neutral, um, I actually think true neutral is appropriate because it becomes interesting to see if a person can roleplay that well enough to see if they can find a way to uh, believe in the balance of life and nature and everything else uh, and do so in a way that fits within the game. But if they start attaching chaotic or lawful to the neutral, all of a sudden the, the, the nuances and the subtlety get in there so much that I think we're kind of leaving the, the game and getting into a philosophy class that makes it a little bit harder for me to have fun with. Hmm. Now, well, taking a step back, you had mentioned that um, chaotic evil is not necessarily the most dastardly evil alignment in the chart. In fact, I'd say that if you wanted to have a most evil, maybe lawful evil is because they're going to be more effective at it. You know what? I'm I'm thinking neutral evil because I, whenever I see neutral evil and looking at that description and how it's played, they're like the utter complete bastard of the group. They don't care about <laughs> anything, anyone, and even themselves at certain points unless it benefits them somehow. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that neutral evil character is going to be that ultimate evil character. What do you think about that? You know, actually, you're right. I think if I was going to create a really worthy opponent for the players, a neutral evil NPC would definitely be the type. I hadn't thought of it that way. Okay. Well, now that we've discussed all the alignments and how your characters play them and which one's this way and that way, what happens if your character is neutral good and then suddenly does some acts of evil and becomes neutral evil or chaotic evil what does the okay, book say for that jason so now so now you're getting to the point of why alignment actually even exists in the system in the first place because you know the truth is while most of ad and uh, exists in a sense as a modeling or a simulation of the f- of a fantasy world alignment is something that doesn't really have a real world um Equivalent, you know, people in the real world don't have alignments. You know, somebody isn't like that. So, the reason that it's in the game is because there's certain things that rely on 
those alignment tendencies, such as the powers granted by a god, uh, which is generally going to be for a cleric, Mm -hmm. or a paladin, or uh, a druid. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's other things, but I think that's a good one to focus on first, because a cleric, and, and a paladin as well, gets their spells directly from a deity. And the reason that a cleric has spells in the game is so that they can do the work of their god. Right. So if they're out there doing something else, if this is, as you said, a neutral good cleric, and suddenly that cleric shifts to the ways of evil to the point where a DM can say, you've been acting completely different from what your alignment says for some time now, that's when the god is going to come in and take a series of measures. Uh, It might start out with denying some spells. Mm -hmm. It may uh, involve being sent on a quest if they're a paladin to say you've strayed well a paladin's going to be lawful good but you've strayed from your alignment in some way you have to make penance for it if it continues it's quite likely that that deity is simply going to abandon that character meaning that they're no longer going to be blessed by their god they're no longer going to get any spells above second level or third level I think second level I believe so yeah cause I think it's anything above second level that is actually granted on a, on a proactive basis, uh, and they're going to have to find a new deity to worship if they ever want to get higher level spells again. And the other gods, when they see this cleric coming that was not true to their alignment, it's kind of like coming to the bank with a bad credit rating. <laughs> they, they, they might take you in, but it's going to be on a probationary sense, and if you have a character who's jumping from alignment to alignment to alignment, uh, their gods are not going to put up with that, and they'll, they'll probably never find uh, one that they can follow. And at that point, you've effectively rendered that character pointless as a cleric. Okay, well, there we have our in-character effect on what happens. Now, what about the out-of-character effect or the actual penalty on the character itself as far as the sheet is concerned? Have you done anything to your character's by penalizing them otherwise? Well, um, we've had players go off alignment a bit, but I've never actually penalized anybody to that point because um, you know, everybody I've ever played with is in it for fun and they tend to they want to follow the restrictions that are in there because it's part of the game. Uh, and, and insisting on constantly playing against their alignment would be I'm I'm not going to say it's cheating because it's not cheating but it's it's that type of a thing where you're really not making it fun for yourself either so I haven't really encountered that um, the closest thing I can think of is having a character that actually played maybe too close to his alignment I, I, there was a paladin in our game who um I'll say that he kind of he he maybe hadn't read the the article, the famous Dragon Magazine article called Good Isn't Stupid. Oh, jeez. And he was just, he would rush against any monster. He would refuse to kill monsters that actually needed to be. Uh, he, he basically was making, it was, it, it got kind of fun for a while because the party got to the point where if something had to be done, they would sneak up behind the paladin and like Mr. T on the A-team, they would just knock him out. <laughs> Um, that brings up, and it was great. It so <laughs> upset the guy that was playing it. He actually got mad in real life. I thought he was wow. gonna like get up and go home. 
I think that's a, I think that's a new alignment that has uh, been created over the years from players, and and it does fall into the lawful, but it's called lawful stupid. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an alignment that ought to be in the book. And if somebody writes an article on that, I'll read it on the air because that's <laughs> that should be a new alignment. Okay, well, I've seen um, certain DMs to certain players that are just like there's so many times that a DM can warn a player and. You know, so much you can do at a point that, like, you know, come on, you're ruining the fun in the game for other players. You're screwing up everything. So I've seen DMs take experience away from characters. That's a good one. Taking experience points away is a very good uh, punishment. For mm -hmm. a, it's appropriate. Yeah. Because uh, one thing you should do if a person's really playing close to their alignment is award them experience points for really sticking to their alignment. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a valuable part of the game. It can add a lot of flavor and fun to it. So if somebody mm -hmm. uh, plays that up and, and does something in order to stay chaotic good, you know, deliberately does something a little bit surprising and random and free-spirited, even if they didn't feel like doing it that day because it's their character's uh, alignment, hey, give them some experience points. They're in, they're in character. See, what I like to do with my group at the end of each session when I award experience points out, I like to have all my players decide who did the best role-playing of the night. And they all write it on a piece of paper, and they can't vote for themselves, obviously. And they... Because mm -hmm. <laughs> you know people will do that. They'll oh, yeah. hand it in. And the person that has the best vote in the group, I will award them an extra 200 experience points. You know, that's a really good idea. I think that's something I want to introduce in my game, because uh, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago, oh, I think it was, about... Uh, Role playing and how mm -hmm. you know it's not necessary to go over the top with it, but it adds a lot of fun when a person does really uh, uh, do certain things that are in character. I like that idea. Yeah, it's there's a little extra bonus given by the whole consensus of the group. And and uh, so on the other side, you know, like you say, you can take experience points away. Uh, you can do things such as not granting them the spells mm -hmm. uh, if it's a character class that has specific uh, alignment requirements, such as a ranger has to be good, a paladin has to be lawful good, an assassin has to be evil, etc., etc., mm -hmm. they could just simply lose their class. So the assassin becomes no more than a thief now that they're not evil anymore. The, ra the uh, ranger or the paladin simply become fighters. Or as uh, in another really good article from Dragon Magazine called It's Not Easy Being Good, uh, mm -hmm. this was Roger E. Moore again, and he was talking about things that come up. In fact, came up on Dragon's Foot uh, recently, which is questions about things like torture and killing uh, prisoners and those types of things. And he said he had a paladin that was engaging in all of these clearly evil behaviors, and he got so fed up with it after repeated uh, incidences that he had his god simply strike the paladin down in a bolt of lightning, and that was it. Dead mm -hmm. paladin. Okay, well, folks, if you want to tell us how your group experiences go with alignment and how you handle alignment as a DM, shoot us an email, rfistaff at gmail.com, and we'll read your emails on the air, and we will answer any of your questions. And even if they are not that great of emails and you want to say something bad, we'll read those too, just so people can hear what people are saying about us. And if you want to take the time, jump on iTunes and give us a rating. We'd appreciate that, and we can also we will spotlight those people on the show as well. I think that's fair, Jason, right? Absolutely. We'll say nice things if you say nice things, and we'll probably say nice things if you say bad things too because we're nice people. 
Okay, folks. <laughs> let's move on to the Dragon's Horde. And this week, we're going to take a look back at Dragon, uh, uh, Dragon Magazine number 41. Now, every once in a while, they'll put a nice little magic item in there or a little to-do in there. But this week is going to be the Glowing Globe in Dragon Magazine, 4's, uh, Dragon Magazine 41. And in the interest of time, we're just going to go over this really quickly. So, Jason, give us a little breakdown of this uh, Glowing Globe. Well, the glowing globe is a uh, magic item that you that you don't want. No, I love it. It's it's something that it's a luminous globe that floats always mm-hmm. above and just behind the shoulder of the person who first touched it. Ooh. So, uh, there was a, an old song I forget that it was about a boom 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 that somebody found on a beach and they followed them around the world. Well, this is like that. You go and you and if you touch it. Instantly, you've got this glowing globe that's going to go everywhere with you, Ugh. and uh, you're not going to be able to, to dim the light, and you're not going to be able to sneak up on anybody. You're probably not going to be too welcome in taverns or uh, in, in hotels or anything else as you have this thing that just goes everywhere with you. Wow. And how do we get rid of this globe? You don't. <laughs> you just don't. Um, well. The globe, uh, you can't control the brightness. Um you can't turn it invisible unless you have a wish, and you can't remove it unless you have either a limited or a full wish or a remove curse, and that's about it. And also, if someone touches your globe, they inherit another globe. Oh, do they... So so if you've got a globe and somebody comes up and touches it, a second globe comes into place? Yeah, I've done that before, just to oh, get man. a rise out of my So you party. can have a whole party that's the party of the glowing globes. <laughs> yeah, and this is a good way to uh, smack the hand of your thief in the group or smack the hand of the fighter that's just constantly taking things. Well, you know what? Maybe you should look before you just grab at random things because you want them because they look cool. Okay, so that's the glowing globe in uh, Dragon Magazine number 41, which is... It's just great. I'm going to use one of these. Definitely check it out and tell us how what you think about it. RFIstaff at gmail.com Moving on to the Stickler's Spotlight. This is a big one for a stickler out there. Keeping track of... And that can, is a blank underline because there's so many different things in AD&D First Edition you can keep track of. So what are we going to talk about this time? So this time we're going to talk about keeping track of things like uh, your arrows, um, Mm -hmm. your your, uh, darts, different things that you have to carry a lot of and that you're going to use on a regular basis, uh, food rations, Mm -hmm. the things that are actually carried by a character that get used up, the consumables. Mm -hmm. Is this really important? Yeah, it is important. At least I think so. Yeah, I think... I, I, it, it's, it's sometimes it's difficult because, you know, for a DM to be keeping track of things all the time, I know in my game I'm, te- I'm keeping track of the time. You know, I'm marking off segments and rounds. Uh, I'm trying to keep track to some extent of the things that the players are carrying, but I also want to be able to rely on my players to mark things off as appropriate as well. Right, and... and- as far as those are the things that players keep track of, their ranged weapons, their darts, their arrows, how many rations they are, and you as a DM could, you know, for the rations, say, a certain amount of time passed, you minus rations, and you will have to leave it on the honor of the player to, you know, get rid of it 
properly. And most yeah. players will not cheat on those things because, you know, that ruins the fun of the game. But, well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, with a game like uh, AD&D where there's no winner, what's the point of cheating? Exactly. You're just, taking, you're just taking fun away from yourself. But now here comes an interesting thing. The charges on, say, wands or uh, a sword or something like that. Now, are, are we going to tell the player that? No, of course not. You don't tell your player that. Unless, well, wait, actually, before you continue, Jason, you may tell your player because you may not really care and you don't want to keep track of that. But what's this, you know, the DM has to have some fun. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of those things that you can really call based on your, your game. Uh, I would, if somebody was asking me what to do, I'd recommend saying that the DM should keep track of it. And like you just said, have the player be surprised when that charge isn't there at the moment they need it. Yeah. Uh, it also encourages them to have to go and find a way to discover just how many charges there are. Um, I think, again, we talked about in the past about an identify spell. Would an identify spell give mm-hmm. you that kind of information? Um, yes, identify spell will tell you how many uses. Mm-hmm. So that's good, because that way a player could uh, keep track of it themselves. But in any case, this is one where you could argue uh, whether or not some resource management is necessary, but in the case of... Uh, charges on a on a rod or a staff or a wand absolutely you're going to have to keep track of that definitely and on a dm uh, side of this thing if you're going to keep it a secret it's so much fun when that player like you said goes to use (laughs) it and it's just like nothing happens and they're like oh crap i've relied on this weapon or this item for so long and now it's gone what do i do well possibly get it recharged maybe either that or hope they have what are they, Thousand League boots? <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. get you out of there very quickly? That's right. In either case, tell us what you think and how you do it and how you handle your game, and we'll respond back, rfistaff at gmail.com. Let's step into the library. What do we have this week, Jason? So in the library this week, um, this isn't really going to be so much of a review as a what am I reading right now because I'm only halfway through this book. Mm. But uh, I, had, I didn't even know it existed until recently because this predates me by a little bit. It's a book called Quag Keep by Andre Norton. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you go on Amazon, uh, you'll be able to find the second book that was written called Return to Quag Keep. But this one... Uh, is a little bit harder to find. You can still probably pick it up used. We did we did talk a couple of weeks ago about a book, um, uh, a book of arms and armor, which I mentioned at the time was uh, I had bought a used copy. Right. And oh, in fact, uh, you can find that new. There is there is a, a a new printing of that one, but this one it's not the case. Oh, I actually, interrupt you for a second. Someone in the D twenty radio forums, Buzz XF did find a nice little link on Amazon for the exact book that you do have. And he posted, oh, that's perfect. And he posted it up, and I uh, placed it in our show notes on the D20 Radio Forum. Perfect. So I hope people are picking that book up, because I'd love to be able to talk to somebody about it, and hmm. maybe they can tell me what page to turn to. <laughs> um, Go on. So, so Quag Keep, this is what's notable about this book, is it was the first fictional work, the first book of fiction ever set in a Dungeons and Dragons universe, specifically in the world of Greyhawk. Uh, this author, Andre Norton, was a friend of Gary Gygax and was playing in Gary Gygax's personal 
uh, gaming group back in the mid-70s. And uh, after doing that for a while, decided to write a, uh, a, a piece of fiction based around the game. So I, I'm, I'm going to come right out and say it, that first of all, this is not a great work of literature. <laughs> um, it's an, I, I'm enjoying it, but um, as, as fantasy authors go, this is not Robert Asprin or um, J.R.R. Tolkien or Fritz Lieber, but uh, but, he, but he's good. What, what I think is really good about this particular book is that it actually gives a lot of uh, context and insight into what it would have been like to play with Gary Gygax in the 70s. Oh, cool. Uh, so so the, the, the point of this book is that Quag Keep is, uh, in the book, Quag Keep is a miniatures company. They, they create miniatures. Quag Keep is the... Uh, company that makes those and at the beginning of the book there's a group of people that are playing uh, a miniatures war game and again if you keep in mind this book came out in 77 or 78 something like that so anybody reading it that would have been a pretty unusual thing right there to hear about uh, and it uses a plot device that has since become a little bit of a cliche but at the time was actually pretty fresh and that plot device is the idea of players falling into a game. So kind of like Tron, you know, you fall into the computer game. Well, in yeah. this, the players, they, they don't fall into it. What happens actually is that the, uh, the characters that you first encounter is very, very quickly into the book after the, um, the real world people are there. You encounter a character named Milo, Mm-hmm. Jagon okay. and Nail Fangtooth, uh, who, who are referred to as a swordsman and a berserker, respectively, who suddenly find themselves in a tavern where all good uh, adventures start. <laughs> uh, but what's unusual is that each of them has a bracelet uh, on their wrist around which are a set of dice. And they can't remove the bracelet, and they can't control the dice. And so you see where this is going. Those represent the dice that control their fates. And they quickly discover that they are not only themselves, these characters in this fantasy world, but they're also the characters in, you know, in our world. And what's happening is that there is an evil force of some type that is trying to break down the wall between the worlds uh, to do some horrible evil that I don't know because I'm only halfway through. <laughs> uh, but it, it's 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 actually it's really fun. And um, we were talking earlier about alignment. Well, this was written, uh, I guess, in the game that he was playing. There was only chaos and law because the struggle in this book is between the forces of chaos and law. Uh, there's no chaotic evil or mention of anything like that. There's a lot of really uh, familiar settings that anybody who knows Greyhawk will be familiar with. The Great Kingdom is in there. Uh, the Duchy of Maritz, Joff, Blackmer, Ernst, uh, Holy Land. There's all of these these different places are named. Uh, and I think it's really interesting in, in terms of just a book that you can read and kind of see how the game was played in the 70s because it's the way that the characters are acting in this book. So uh, it's, it's, it's well written. I mean, I, I don't want to you know, overemphasize what I was saying before because it actually is it is well written. It's just you know, if you're picking this up purely as a work of of literature, you're you're probably not going to be uh, there. But it's a book that is really worth picking up just for the historical value and to uh, kind of transport yourself back in time 
to a game with Gary Gygax in 1978. Okay, cool. Shoot us an email and tell us what you're reading. And uh, if you have read this book that Jason has in his hands, tell us what you think about it. And don't tell me how it ends, because I'm only halfway through. Okay, folks. Uh, I just want to thank you again for tuning in to the Roll for Initiative podcast. This was episode number three. I am one of your hosts, DM Vince, and... And I am DM Jason. And we'll be signing off, and we'll be back in a week. And if you want to get in contact with us, rfistaff at gmail.com, and our website, which you're working on, Jason? Uh, that is the RFI podcast. Oh, no, don't put the dot. Just It's <laughs> www.rfipodcast.com. So go on there, take a look, drop us a line. We will read everything you say. And you can also go to the d20radio.com slash forum and uh, give us a shout-out there because we have our own space. Or you can reach us in the Dragonfoot forum, uh, dragonfoot.org slash forums. And uh, we'll be signing off for the week. Have a good night, folks. Roll for initiative.